Why do you suppose God created us? Why do you suppose he created you or me? Why did God create mankind? The Bible gives us the answer to that question. And there are various ways that the answer could be couched or phrased, but one way of doing that is that God created us to have a personal, intimate relationship with Him. Notice in Genesis chapter 1, where it tells us about the creation of mankind, Genesis 1 and verse 27, it says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in the first chapter of Genesis, it talks about the creation of various creatures, physical creatures. But the only creature that it says was created in the image of God is, is a human being. And notice that it says in this context of God creating mankind in his own image that he created human beings male and female in other words human beings were created in god's image and part of that being in god's image means that they were created as a family they were created as a family created as male and female and that implies that they were to have a most intimate kind of relationship. Notice in Genesis 2 and verse 24, where God had created Adam and Eve, and it tells us in chapter 2 more of the details about that, but in verse 24 it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So a husband and a wife are joined together and in a sense become one flesh, no longer two, although they are two. They remain two individuals, but they develop a relationship where in a sense they also are one. It's that intimate relationship where two become one in a sense, in a family relationship. And that's precisely the kind of relationship that God created human beings to have with Him, a family relationship, an intimate, the most intimate kind of relationship possible between individuals. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15 Malachi, or perhaps we should say God speaking through Malachi, says in verse 15 of chapter 2, Did not he make them one? Now we just read where God created Adam and Eve, but he made them one. Even though they were two individuals, they were made one. And so the question is, did he not make them one? having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Why, were, why was mankind created 
in such a way as the two human beings became one. And it answers the question. It says he seeks godly offspring. They're created one so that they could have offspring also in the image of God. Now this phrase, he seeks godly offspring, could also be translated, he seeks offspring of God. And actually both ideas are relevant to God's purpose for creating human beings and creating the family. Because in being created in the image of God as a family, it tells us that God himself is a family and that he seeks to expand the numbers of people included in his family. That's why he created human beings to develop offspring, to increase the numbers in his family those sharing the same kind of intimate relationship that God the Father and Jesus Christ have shared through eternity. And so it goes on to say, Therefore take heed to your spirit, let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. And this is in the context of discussing the types of behavior which destroy the kind of intimate relationship that should exist in a marriage reflecting our relationship with God as members of his divine family. So we were made to enter in to a family relationship with God. That implies that each of us needs to develop a personal and intimate relationship with God. Do you have that kind of relationship? Have you developed a personal, intimate relationship with God. Well, that's what I want to talk about in today's sermon is our personal relationship with God, how that can be developed if one does not have it, and if you already have a relationship with God, how it can be strengthened and made richer. As we've been discussing, God did in fact create us not just the first human beings, but each of us were created through the process of procreation, which goes back to the original creation of mankind. We were created, each of us, through that process, and we were created for the same purpose that God created the first human beings, and that is to have a personal relationship with Him. And He calls each person for the same purpose. That's why God calls people. He calls them into that kind of relationship. And sooner or later, every single human being will be called into that kind of relationship because every human being was created for that purpose. God at one point intervened in the affairs of Israel now, Israel was a nation captive in Egypt. They had been taken or wound up in Egypt through a series of circumstances affecting the progenitor of the Israelites, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who were his son and grandson. And then 
they eventually, that family wound up in Egypt where they became enslaved. For many years they were enslaved and had pretty much lost any knowledge that they might have had of God for the most part at least. But God eventually intervened for them and made them his own people. And notice what we find about that over in Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 7. And this is where God is speaking to the people of Israel. And he relates how he had entered into a special kind of relationship with Israel. Ezekiel 16, verse 4. He says, as for your nativity or your birth, that's what nativity means. So he's, he, he's using an analogy here of birth as the founding of the nation of Israel. He says, as for your nativity or your birth, your origin, on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. And this was, of course, what would normally be done when a baby was born to parents. But he's depicting Israel as a cast-off a castaway. And he says, No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day that you were born. When God intervened in the affairs of Israel at some point in their captivity, they were a people who had been, in a sense, forsaken and were being persecuted under the Egyptian government and their babies were being murdered and so forth this is the state in which God took them under his wing so to speak and he says and when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood I said to you in your blood live yes I said live I said said to you in your blood live I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew and nurtured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Now this term, spreading the wing over a person, is used in in the Bible and was commonly used evidently of entering into a marriage relationship or agreement with a man between a man and a woman. It could also, of course, relate to how birds cover their young with their wings to protect them. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. So God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel and this relationship is likened to the relationship between a husband and a wife. It's that kind of intimate relationship similar to the relationship between a husband and a wife. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7 Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7 God is speaking to the people of Israel and he says 
In verse 7 of Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. God did not choose Israel and choose to establish this particular kind of relationship with them. And notice how it is described. It is described as setting his love on them. Again, as a husband would set his love on a bride or a wife, he did not do it because they were the greatest people on earth. He didn't do it because they were the most intelligent, the smartest, the most famous, the most brilliant, or any of those reasons. He says they were the least of all peoples. They were a, a, a nation enslaved and persecuted and small in number, relatively speaking. In Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26, verse 11, God is telling Israel how he would bless them if they would fulfill their obligations to him under the covenant that they had entered into with him. And remember, this was a covenant that is typified by marriage, a very intimate, close relationship. And God told them that if they would be faithful to the terms of the covenant, well, we might look up at verse 9. It says, I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. So God tells us that if we are faithful, he will bless us and make us fruitful. That's what he told Israel. And the same principle applies to any of us. And then verse 11, he says, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So God would establish such a relationship with Israel that he would dwell among them. He would walk with them and be with them in this personal intimate relationship. And it was God's intent to dwell among Israel and be their God, to establish this close relationship with them, this relationship of love. And the same kind of analogy is used in God's relationship with the church, which is referred to as spiritual Israel in the New Testament. God also, under the New Covenant, is establishing a similar relationship with the church of God. And this is described over in Ephesians chapter 5 again as a kind of marriage relationship, figuratively speaking. Ephesians 5 verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, how did Christ express his love toward the church? One way that he did that is by actually giving his own life and sacrifice for the church, for our salvation. In verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So this tells us that Christ wants us to also remain faithful to the covenant and enter into that kind of 
close personal relationship with him and also with the Father. Notice what Jesus prayed about just before his crucifixion over in John 17 where it records a prayer of Jesus that occurred shortly before his crucifixion. And in John 17, verse 13, Jesus prayed, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Christ was saying that the reason he came to be with mankind and to teach the things that he taught was that so we could experience his joy, so that his joy could be fulfilled in us. In verse 20, he said, I do not pray for these alone, meaning those disciples who were alive at that time, but he said, also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would include us and all disciples down through history who have believed in God's message through the word that was preserved by the apostles and others whom God used to record his word during the New Testament era, and for that matter, throughout the Old Testament era as well. And he said, I do not pray for these alone, but those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now remember that when God created Adam and Eve and made them a family, he made them one, so to speak. They were two separate individuals, but they became one. Now even after they became one, they were still two separate individuals. They weren't the same person, they were two persons. They were still Adam, male, and Eve, female. Each had his own personality his own strengths and weaknesses, his own individual identity. And yet they were still one. And here it tells us that we as Christ's disciples are also to be one. That is, we do not lose our individual attributes, but we join together as one with those attributes and become unified together. And we see that that is made possible through our becoming one in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. There are other scriptures that tell us that our being one, one with one another as Christians is predicated on our being one with God, with Christ and with the Father. So that comes first. Our, our relationship with God takes precedence over any other relationship. It takes precedence even over the relationship we might have as husband and wife if we are married. And a good marriage, any kind of marriage, especially a Christian marriage, that is going to accomplish the purpose for which God created marriage fully, is going to be predicated on the relationship the individuals in that marriage have with God. And the same is true, especially true in the church. 
So if we want to be one in the church, if we want to have real, genuine unity, godly unity in the church, then we must have first that oneness with God and with Christ because it is through them that we can have that kind of unity. In verse 24, Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. And now notice again, we saw where God said that he would walk with and dwell with Israel if they would remain faithful to his covenant. And the same thing applies under the new covenant. If we want to be with Christ, then we will be faithful. And one of the things that is promised under the new covenant, if we are faithful, is that we will be with Christ. And we will be with the Father, ultimately, as well. And it says, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Christ wants to be with us. He desires that relationship with us. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now this prayer is going to be fulfilled, the answer to it will be fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns to the earth in glory and power. And those who are alive at that time will behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Also, those who have lived and died in this age and been faithful will be resurrected and will also behold Christ's glory at the time of his coming. And they will also be with him from then on in that intimate relationship that he desires. We are called to live together with God for eternity. That is the purpose of our calling. It's the purpose of our being created. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul tells us what his intent for us is. Verse 9, Paul says, God did not appoint us to wrath. God did not appoint us to wrath. That's not his will or desire for us. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some, even in the church, have doubted whether God really wants to bless them or not. Sometimes people get into a sort of uh, frame of mind where they think that God is out to get them and that God is intent on destroying them. That, that's not true. God does not will or desire to, to see anyone destroyed. God's purpose for every human being is to eventually have them in his kingdom. And he has appointed us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if you're in the church, then that is God's will for you. And, and even if you're not in the church, that's God's will for you, ultimately to obtain salvation. And there are other scriptures that specifically tell us that. 
that God intends it and, and wills and desires that all people ultimately be saved. Now, we have a choice in the outcome, though, of our lives because part of it is up to us and how we respond to God's making available to us the opportunity for salvation, just as the ultimate outcome of Israel's relationship with God was dependent on their response to their calling and the opportunities that God gave them. But it goes on to say in verse 10, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. It's what God has called us to, to live together with him. And he says whether we wake or sleep. And what he's talking about is not literally waking or sleeping. He's talking about being alive or being dead. And if we die in Christ, then we will also live with him in the resurrection. But if we're still alive, then as we live, we ought to be living together with Christ, that is, living in a close, personal, and intimate relationship with Christ. That's available to us now. We don't have to wait for God's kingdom to have a relationship with God, and we should not be waiting because we need to be developing that relationship now. And if we're not developing it now, then we won't have any basis for a later relationship with God. The time for us to develop that relationship with God is now, especially if we have been called and we are in the church. We, are, we have an obligation, a duty, a responsibility to develop that relationship. Indeed, all mankind does, but us especially. And it is God's purpose not only for Jesus Christ to return to this earth to dwell with mankind, but the Bible says that God the Father will in the future also come to the earth to dwell with mankind. The Bible nowhere teaches that human beings will go to heaven to dwell with God. It tells us that God is going to come back to the earth or Christ will come back to the earth to dwell with human beings. And it also tells us that eventually God the Father himself will come to the earth to dwell with mankind. In Revelation 21 and verse 3, it says, well, in the first couple of verses, it's talking about the new Jerusalem. It says in verse 2, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. The tabernacle implying God's dwelling place where he lives. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. So God the Father, Jesus Christ, will have already long since have come back to the earth at the time frame that this is speaking of here. But this is speaking of God the Father coming down out of heaven with the holy city, so to speak, the heavenly Jerusalem 
coming with him to dwell with mankind. And it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death. This is after all who are going to ultimately die have died, including those who will die in the second death as punishment for their unwillingness to repent of their sins. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So God is, is purposed to dwell with mankind in a particular kind of relationship. And it's not just any old kind of relationship. It is a relationship based on trust, on faith, on proper behavior. And there are some who, down through history, have had that kind of relationship with God. Not very many, but a few. The patriarchs of old had a personal and intimate relationship with God. Patriarchs meaning people like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and others. And this is written about in various places in the Bible where it tells us that these men walked with God. They walked with God. And God wants us to have that same kind of relationship with Him as Christians. In, in fact, that's the very essence of Christianity. In Colossians chapter 1, the very essence of Christianity is to have that kind of relationship with God that people like Abraham had in the past and that we can have now, if we will. In Colossians 1 and verse 26, it says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, and that has to do with the very purpose of existence, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of his majesty among the Gentiles. The church, the saints of God, had taken the gospel message to the Gentiles, the message which included all kinds of information about God and God's purpose and what God was intending for mankind, which included the understanding of God's purpose being to dwell with mankind for eternity, which we've been discussing. And notice it says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our hope of glory in the future in the kingdom of God is based on Christ dwelling in us now. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ dwelling in us is the basis for our hope of being in his kingdom, glorified saints in his kingdom, glorified children in his family for eternity. And the basis for that hope, if it is a genuine hope, is Christ in us now. Now, what could be a more intimate relationship than Jesus Christ actually living in us? living his life in us. 
The key to our own personal salvation is developing and maintaining a close, personal, intimate relationship with Christ and the Father through which they dwell in us. And with that kind of relationship, we can thrive and we can flourish spiritually. We can bear fruit and we can be in God's kingdom. Notice what Jesus said in John 15 about that relationship with him. John 15 and verse 4, Jesus said, Abide in me or live in me. Again, notice the intimacy of these words. Abide in me and I in you. This is describing a relationship where two become one, so to speak. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. We can do nothing worthwhile spiritually except through the power of Jesus Christ dwelling in us. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Now, we see here another analogy of individual branches. And we are described here as the branches of the vine. Individual branches on a vine. Now, branches are individual, but they're also, in a sense, one with the vine Together they make the whole plant. Now what good is a vine that is separated from, I mean a branch that is separated from the vine? It's no good at all. What happens when you cut a branch off a vine? Well, if you've ever done any gardening or even pruning, you know what happens. In fact, if you can even read this and understand it, you know what happens. It withers, it dries up, withers and dries up and dies and is good for nothing but to be cast into the fire, as Jesus said. So this tells us that if we expect to flourish spiritually, if we expect to be in God's kingdom, we must have this kind of relationship. We must develop it. And that means we must not let any obstacle keep us or prevent us from having this kind of relationship with God. We cannot let anyone or anything get in the way. We can't let any circumstance in life get in the way or interfere or present an an insuperable barrier to developing and maintaining that relationship. And it is not a relationship you can have by proxy. You can't do it through someone else. You can't have someone else do it for you. There are people claiming today, frauds and charlatans claiming that the only way you can have a a relationship with God is through some other person, human being living on the earth. But that's a lie. You don't need to go through another human being to have a relationship with God. In fact, you can't go through another human being other than Jesus Christ himself. 
And to have that relationship, it must be directly between you and God. You can't let the church interfere with that. You can't let the minister interfere with that relationship. You can't let your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your boss, or you yourself and your own lusts, your own failures and inadequacies, your own pride and vanity get between you and God. You can't let anything get between you and God. It's got to be a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with you and Jesus Christ and through him with the Father. Now, you may already have that relationship or you may not, but if you do have it, you need to strengthen it and you need to maintain it. And if you don't, you need to begin developing it. And everyone can develop that kind of relationship with God. We've been reading numerous scriptures where God tells us he wants to have that kind of relationship with us. But it's got to be something that we want too. To have a relationship with another person takes a desire on the part of both persons to have a relationship. You can't have a close relationship with someone who wants nothing to do with you. God wants to have a relationship with us. The question is, do we want to have the same kind of relationship with God that he wants with us? Now, if your answer is yes, then the next question is, how do you go about having that kind of relationship with God? Well, I'm going to discuss three keys to help you develop and maintain a personal relationship with God. Now, obviously, this is not everything that could be said about this subject. There's no way that in, a, in the time allotted for a sermon, we can do much more than scratch the surface about this, but we can at least give you a place to begin. And I want to discuss three keys to help you establish this kind of relationship or to help you maintain it. The first key to having and maintaining a relationship with God is faith. Is faith. Now, the Greek word translated faith in the New Testament quite often is pistis. The very same word is also translated belief a number of times. Because that's what faith is. Faith is simply believing. But it is a firm belief. It is a sure belief. It is a belief which implies commitment and conviction. And which also automatically affects one's conduct. That's what real faith is. Faith is not just a kind of a casual or superficial belief that is the kind of faith that God wants us to have, but it is a deep conviction, a deep belief that affects the way you think and the way you act. Notice in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, it tells us, without faith it is impossible to please him. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God, that is, he who wants to have a relationship with God, must believe that he is. 
So the first step to having a relationship with God is you've got to believe that God is. You've got to believe there is a God. You've got to believe that God exists. Pretty difficult to have a relationship with someone that you don't even believe exists. Okay, so you've got to start there. But it goes beyond that. It also says, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So you must believe first that God exists, and then beyond that you must believe that God is faithful and that he will keep his promises if you do your part. Notice there are two parts to this. A rewarder of those who... Uh, who uh, do nothing doesn't say he rewards those who do nothing that's what many preachers will tell you that you don't you don't have to do anything jesus did everything for you you've got to do nothing except believe and profess jesus as your savior that's not what the bible teaches the bible teaches that god is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him but first you've got to believe that god exists and then believe that God is faithful to his word. So how do you come to this belief that God exists? One of the most powerful proofs of God's existence is his creation. Years ago, a preacher who became famous for this analogy by the name of William Pally, I believe his first name was William, he he compared faith in God through witnessing his creation as seeing a watch and understanding that if there's a watch, there's got to be a watchmaker. A lot of people have made fun of that analogy, but it is still a very valid analogy. If you're out walking out on a beach somewhere, all by yourself, no one around, no buildings, no evidence, of any other human being, and you look down and you find a watch lying on the beach, what do you conclude? That the watch just got there because a bunch of sand washed up on the beach and formed itself into a watch? No, not likely. The The obvious conclusion that you would reach is, is if there's a watch there somewhere, there's got to be a watchmaker. Now, we have an entire creation lying at our feet that provides proof of God's existence. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah 40 and verse 18, it says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? One of the problems with human beings down through history is that they've not been satisfied to worship the God who created everything. They have wanted to manufacture their own gods. And that's what God is addressing here in, in the book of Isaiah is idolatry and other sins. And every God except the true God is a manufactured God. But God... The real God is not a manufactured God. He is the creator of the universe. 
He's the creator of everything. And that's what God is pointing out here. What will you liken to me, the God who made and created everything? There is no other God like that. In verse 21, he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. The creator God is the one who made the earth and made the heavens, which testify to his existence and his power and his glory. In verse 25 it says, To whom will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created all these things. Who brings out their host by number, he calls them all by name by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Some people feel that their prayers have not been answered, and they're not content with their lot in life. And maybe they've asked God to deliver them, and, and they've not yet been delivered, and they think that God has not heard them. God assures us that whatever our feelings might be, He does hear our prayers, and He knows our condition, and He knows our needs. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord, now this is an important key to faith too, is we make our request known to God and then we wait. And these are two very important aspects to our relationship with God. We look up, we see the, the creation, we acknowledge God's existence as creator, we make our needs and petitions known to him and then we wait and it says those who do wait shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint so if you want proof that god exists look at the creation study the details of the creation its complexity and there are not a few Men of science, science is kind of a sacred cow in our modern world, and in some ways has always been that way, what men have thought of as science or human knowledge. But modern science is ostensibly based on a particular approach to knowledge, based on evidence, supposedly, although not everything that's called science is necessarily based on real evidence. But... There are many men of science who have studied various aspects of the creation and come to the conclusion, for example, that life, physical 
life, such as we see on the earth in the form of physical creatures, could not have come into existence except through the power of an intelligence, a superhuman intelligence, a supernatural intelligence, such as God. And others have concluded that many other aspects of the physical creation could not exist except through the power of a creator with supernatural intelligence. There are laws of science that tell us that there has to be a creator. The second law of thermodynamics, for example, that tells us that all things tend toward a state of chaos or confusion or disorder. And yet we live in a highly complex, highly ordered creation that is precisely contrary to one of the most fundamental, perhaps the most fundamental law of the universe. What that means is that the only way that order or the only way the complex nature of things that we see before us, especially living things, is that there is a God who created them. In chapter 45 of Isaiah, in verse 21, chapter 45, verse 21, we see another proof of God, and that is fulfilled prophecy. God says in verse 21, Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? There are prophecies in the Bible that go back thousands of years, detailed prophecies about things that would happen in the future and things that are even happening now to one extent or another. In verse 22 it says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. No one can predict the future in the kind of detail that it is predicted in many prophecies throughout the Bible except God. He is the one who is the source of these prophecies recorded in Scripture, which have come to pass detail after detail affecting various nations and peoples. And one example are the, the blessings which have been bestowed on modern Israel where the descendants of Israel have become the premier nations at the end of the age or near the end of the age as was prophesied thousands of years ago and have been blessed as no other peoples in all of history, have had power such as no other people have exercised over the entire earth. And all of it was prophesied in detail. That's just one example. There are others that could be mentioned. And these are subjects that you can study to increase your faith. And if you're not convinced that God exists, have an open mind, study these matters, and come to the logical conclusion. Chapter 46 and verse 9, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So there are a number of approaches to determining whether God exists or not. 
it, you can prove one way or another whether God exists. And these are just a couple of lines of evidence that will help you do that. There are others as well. But once you've proven that God exists, then you've got to believe in God. That is, you you have to have a personal belief in God, a trust, a faith in God, that God will do what he says he will do. Do you believe that God has your best interests in mind and in in his heart? Do you believe that God really wants to save you? That God wants to bless you with eternal life, as his word says? Do you believe that God will do that if you do your part, if you cooperate, if you accept salvation on his terms, not on your terms, but his terms? Israel did not have that kind of faith. The nation of Israel as a whole did not have that kind of faith in God. They did not believe in God. They did not trust God, at least not enough to actually obey God. Now, they had no doubt that God existed, at least they had no excuse for not believing he existed, because God worked miracle after miracle after miracle in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and bringing them through the wilderness. But all those miracles did not produce genuine faith in the people of Israel, unfortunately. Notice over in Hebrews 3 where it's talking about God's dealings with Israel and their lack of faith. And that was why they failed as a nation to fulfill their calling calling that God had given them. They failed to fulfill it because of their lack of faith. And so it tells us here in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. If you have a genuine belief in God, that's going to be evidenced by being your being faithful to God. But if you don't really have a, a firm belief, the kind of faith that God requires, you will depart from God as Israel did and, and disobeyed God. It goes on to say here, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If you toy with sin and entertain it and participate in it, it will destroy your faith. Sin has a corrosive effect on faith and, of course, on our relationship with God, and it is deceitful. Sin can look very appealing, but it will corrode and corrupt your mind and your spirit so that any faith you might have will be destroyed over time for we have become partakers of christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said today if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for who having heard rebelled indeed was not was it not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry? Forty years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, which is, was a type of the kingdom of God, but to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief or lack of faith. Now contrast Israel's lack of faith, which led to disobedience, with that of Abraham, who believed God and will be, be in God's kingdom because he did, in fact, believe God. He had the kind of faith that is righteousness in God's sight. In Romans 4 and verse 17, Paul is writing about that kind of faith. Romans 4 and verse 17, as it is written, this is referring to God's statement to Abraham. I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of whom he believed. Now, the only problem with this is that Abraham had no children. He had no heirs when God made him this promise. And he was very old and his wife was past childbearing age eventually. As time went on, and yet Abraham never lost faith in God's promise. It says he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which exist as though they did not, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and still without any heir and the deadness of Sarah's womb, his wife he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform now he had lived many years, decades waiting for this promise to at least have some chance of coming to fruition. But nothing had happened, except he continued to be childless. And yet it says he was still fully convinced that what God promised was going to happen. And therefore it was counted to him for righteousness. Now it's not written for his sake alone, but it was Im that it was imputed to him but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who is delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. In other words, we need to have the same kind of faith that Abraham had and believe that God is faithful to his word. And if we have that kind of faith, it will be rewarded. Again, though, one of the keys is patience. We must wait on God to act in his own time and in his own way. In Romans 10 and verse 11, it says, the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. But it means that we must continue to believe. We must continue to have that faith regardless of the circumstances in our lives.
Disappointments come in life. How many of us are millionaires? Well, in this room, there aren't any millionaires, are there? And things happen that we see as tragedies and disappointments. In the life of every person, such things happen. But does that mean that God has forsaken us? Or that he has forsaken his promises or will not keep them? God doesn't anywhere promise us that we're going to have all kinds of wealth and material riches in this life. He doesn't promise us anywhere that we're going to always have perfect health. He doesn't promise us that there will be no tragedies, no reverses or setbacks in our lives. In fact, he, he promises just the opposite. There are many examples and even statements in Scripture that tell us that we will suffer trials and tribulations in, in this present life. Are we going to let those things stand between us and a relationship with God? Or can we continue to believe God and wait for God to reward us as he says he will? How can you have such faith as Abraham? The kind of faith it's talking about here where it says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That brings us to the second key that I want to talk about. One of the keys to having that kind of faith is communion with God. You cannot have a relationship, a real meaningful relationship with anyone without communion or communication, if you want to put it in those terms. Communion, by that term, what I'm talking about is verbal communication, talking, interacting in a conversational way, but it involves more than that. It also involves sharing in life, sharing your hopes, your dreams, your experiences, sharing life together. That's what I'm talking about when, I'm, when I say communion with God or with anyone that you want to have a relationship with. Communion is what builds strong relationships. It's what builds strong marriages and strong families. A husband and wife who do not commune with one another, who do not communicate, who do not share life together, have a sham marriage if they have any marriage at all. Usually those marriages fall apart after a while. If you want to have a strong marriage relationship, you must communicate with your mate. And you and your mate must share life together. You must spend time together. Some men don't, don't take the time to, to be with their wives and share with them their thoughts and their hopes and dreams or take time to be with them and share experiences together. But that does not build a strong marriage. That creates a marriage that's on a shaky foundation and that's likely to fall apart. It's the same with our relationship with God. If we want to have a strong relationship with God, we've got to commune with God. That means we've got to come to know God. Who is God after all? How much do you really know about God? Maybe you believe there's a God, but how much do you actually know about God? Do you know anything about God's hopes and dreams? 
what his ambitions are and how you might fit into his desires? Do you know what God is like, what kind of person he is? Do you know what God's values are, what his beliefs are? Do you know what God stands for? Do you know how God thinks? If you don't know these things, then you don't really know God, do you? Well, how do you find out the answers to these questions? It's not impossible to find out, but it does take effort and a desire to find out. It takes communion with God, and God has given us the answers to all these questions that I just referred to. He wrote all of these the answers to all these questions down in a book. And so if you want to find out the answers, study the book. Very few people, even so-called Christians, people who think of themselves as Christians, actually take much time to study the book which tells them who God is, what His purposes are, what He stands for, what He believes, what kind of character he has, and how we fit in. People don't want to study the book. Even many people who claim to be Christians don't want to study the book. They might study other books. They might even read all kinds of books about the book, but they don't want to read the book itself. You've got to read the book if you want to find out about God. And you've got to study it. In Romans 10 and verse 17, it says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. To build faith, you must study God's word. And as you study God's word, and if you study it in the proper frame of mind, that will build faith. The question here is, how can you have faith? The answer, commune with God, and one of the key, one of the basic areas of communing with God is studying God's Word. That's where God converses with you, where He talks to you. In words, you can understand if you study them. And another part of communion is you talking to God. Now, we heard about prayer earlier how we can effectively pray, and that is one of the keys to a relationship with God. Bible study and prayer are the foundation stones of a relationship with God, but of course predicated on these other things that we've been discussing. And if you lack faith, you can ask God for faith, and you can make all of your other requests known to God. In fact, notice what Christ said over here in Luke 11 and verse 9. Notice what Jesus said. He said, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. If you don't have faith, if you lack faith, ask for it. As Christ said, if you ask for it, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. If you want to find out more about God, seek God. Ask for faith. Seek it. 
For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds. And these go together, by the way. You can't ask for faith and then just sit back and do nothing and expect to have faith. We've already read where faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you have a genuine desire for faith, you will ask for it, but you will also seek it through diligent effort. Remember, God rewards those who diligently seek him. So if you want a relationship with God, then you need to diligently seek it. One of the ways you do that is through prayer and Bible study. And to him who knocks, it will be open, Jesus said. If a son asks for bread from his, any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Many people have this weird, twisted idea about God that he's withholding opportunities from human beings to have a relationship with him. God's not withholding the opportunity. That's not the problem. The problem is that people are unwilling to take advantage of the opportunities they have. God's willing to have a relationship with anyone who will ask and seek and knock, including you. As you ask for and receive God's Spirit, as Jesus said he would give you if you really seek it, you will come to have the mind of God. You will come to understand how God thinks. You'll come to understand the answers to these questions. What are God's values and his beliefs? Would you like to know how God himself thinks? That information is available. Notice over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7. It says, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Wisdom could also be called knowledge, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye is not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, this knowledge of God's purpose is not humanly attainable except through a particular means and then Paul tells us what that is in verse 10 God has revealed them to us through his spirit for the spirit searches all things yes the deep things of God some tell us we can't really know God we can't really know much about God because it's just God's nature and his thoughts are just too great for us to discern but the bible says we can the spirit searches everything even the deep things of god we may not know everything but there's a lot we can know and and we'll eventually know everything but it says what man knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Dogs 
don't know what human beings are like because dogs don't have a human mind or a human spirit. Only human beings that have human spirit know what it's like to be a human being. If we want to know the thoughts of God, we must receive that understanding through God's spirit. And in verse 12, it says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we speak, we also speak not in words which man's wisdom searches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So we can come to have the mind of Christ, and that includes the faith of Jesus Christ dwelling in us through the Spirit of God. Another key to communion with God is occasional fasting. Fasting in the proper way, in a spirit of repentance, not for show, but genuinely humbling yourself before God, also can help us develop that intimate relationship with God that we need. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15, Isaiah 57 and verse 15 says, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And one way we can humble ourselves before God is through fasting. And also another key to communion with God is meditating on his word. In the first Psalm, Psalm 1, Psalm 1 and verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits on the, in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. How much time do you think about the things of God, about God's word? How often and how much do you meditate on God's laws and his precepts? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its seasons, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Another key I want to discuss now in the time we have left that is essential to having a, a real intimate personal relationship with God is obedience. Now, most people are, let's say, adverse to the very concept of obedience. Even many who call themselves Christians are repulsed by the idea that Christians must actually obey God. And many ministers have convinced people that 
you don't really have to obey God to be a Christian. But the fact is, you cannot have a close personal relationship with God without being yielded to God and obedient to Him. And there are many scriptures in the Bible which tell us that very clearly. Notice in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3, for example, 1 John 2 and verse 3, it says, By this we know that we know Him. In other words, we do have a relationship with God. We actually know God. We know Christ. How do we know? If we keep His commandments. In other words, if we are obeying Him, obeying His commandments, then we know that we have a relationship with God. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. There are many people who say they know God, but they do not keep His commandments. They refuse to keep His commandments. They're deceived. And in saying they know God, they're lying. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. How do we know if we're keeping his word, if we're obeying God? He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And Christ obeyed the Father perfectly. He lived perfectly according to God's commandments. And so we're to walk as he walked. Sin, which is disobedience to God's laws. Notice in chapter 3 and verse 4, it tells us what sin is. It says, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. That is, lawlessness means living without law or disobeying law, God's laws. And it says sin is lawlessness, that is, living as though there is no law or disobeying the law. In the King James Version, it says sin is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. And what does sin do? Sin cuts us off from God. If you are living deliberately in sin, deliberately sinning on a regular basis, that will cut you off from having that intimate relationship with God that we need. That's why Israel was cut off from God because of their continual disobedience and sinning, refusal to repent of their sins. In Isaiah 59, verse 1, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Notice it says, your iniquities have separated you from your God. So if we want to not be separated from God, if we want to have a relationship with God, we must be obedient. And Jesus said, if we do obey, he will give us that kind of relationship that we need. In John chapter 14, in John 14, in verse 21, he said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, not just having the commandments, but keeping them, it is he who loves me. 
Some people want to talk about how important it is to obey the commandments, but then they themselves don't obey the commandments. So we've got to have commandments and keep them. And it says, if we do that, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him, Jesus said, and manifest myself to him or reveal myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us or reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. In other words, we will come and dwell in that person, have that oneness, that intimate relationship which requires obedience so if you've not developed the kind of close personal intimate relationship with jesus christ that you need to develop he's standing at the door knocking it's not christ's fault you haven't developed that kind of relationship christ wants to have that kind of relationship with you Notice chapter 3 of Revelation and verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Christ is ready to have that kind of relationship with you. The question is, are you ready to have that kind of relationship with him? It's an opportunity that's open to all of us. It's open to you. The question is, what are you going to do with it? All of us need to work on that relationship. We need to develop it further. So let's do it. <laughs> 